This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's John Bank Centre for Astrophysics. For more information, see johncast.net. The night sky for May 2021. As darkness falls, Leo, with its bright star Regulus, is lying fairly high in the southwest. Over to its left is a wonderful region of the sky called the realm of the galaxies. We're looking towards the heart of the Virgo cluster. Some of them are relatively bright and can be seen in a small telescope. They're Messier objects in Charles Messier's catalogue. Looking high overhead is Ursa Major with, of course, the plough, the two stars Merak and Dupe pointing north towards Polaris. If you follow the handle of the plough down towards the lower left and continue down, you come to the bright star Arcturus in Bhuti. Rising later in the evening over towards the east is the very bright star Vega in Lyra, followed by Cygnus the Swan. And these are some of the summer constellations we'll see better in the next month or two. The planet Jupiter. As May begins, and given the low horizon towards the southeast, Jupiter, rising at 0336 BST, around two hours before the sun, may be glimpsed just before dawn shining at magnitude minus 2.2 and having an angular size of 37.44 arc seconds. By month's end, it rises at 0143 BST, about three hours before the sun, when its magnitude will have increased slightly to minus 2.4 and its angular size to 41.2 arc seconds. Sadly, its low elevation of about 20 degrees as dawn approaches will somewhat hinder our view of the solar system's giant planet. And now Saturn. Well, Saturn precedes Jupiter into the sky, rising at 0300 BSD at the beginning of the month. Again, a low horizon towards the southeast will be needed to see them both. It is then shining with a magnitude of plus 0.71, and its disk is 16.7 arc seconds across, with the beautiful rings spanning some 39 arc seconds. By month's end, it rises at 0100 BST, with a slightly increased brightness of magnitude plus 0.57, and a 17.6 arc second disk. We will have to wait a while to see this most beautiful planet at its best. Mercury. Well, this month, Mercury has its best evening apparition of the year. The planet is at its brightest, at magnitude minus one at the start of May. It then lies just below the Pleiades cluster in Taurus, having an angular size of about six arc seconds. From the third to the sixth, it lies within a binocular field of view of the 2.8 magnitude star Alcyon at the Pleiades cluster's centre. Its greatest elongation east is on the 17th, when it stands about 11 degrees above the northwestern horizon, around 45 minutes after sunset. It will then have a magnitude of plus 0.41 and an angular diameter of just over 8 arc seconds. It then falls back towards the horizon, passing very close to Venus on the 28th. Well, Mars passed into Germany on the 23rd of April and starts the month with a magnitude of plus 1.56. It will be seen best in the west at an elevation of about 24 degrees soon after nightfall. Reducing in brightness to plus 1.74 by the end of the month, it will be still be visible in the evening sky until August before it passes behind the sun in October. Venus, 
at the start of May, Venus at a magnitude of minus 3.88 and having an angular size of 10 arc seconds will only have an elevation of 6 degrees at sunset towards the northwest. By month's end, its elevation at sunset will have increased to 11 degrees and its magnitude reduced very slightly to minus 3.85. Venus will grace the evening sky for the rest of the year and reaches its greatest elongation east from the sun on October the 29th. It will be highest in evening sky at the beginning of December. Finally, the highlights of the month. On May the 13th after sunset, if clear, Mercury will be seen to the right of a very thin crescent moon. One might also spot Venus down to the right of the moon. On the 26th, on the late evening, there will be a supermoon. On the night of the 26th, the moon will be at perigee, its closest point to the Earth. Its angular size will be 33.6 arc minutes across, compared to the average diameter of a full moon of about 31 arc minutes so 8% larger in diameter. As the moon is then as bright as it ever can be, it's called a supermoon. Sadly, due to COVID, one could not now fly to New Zealand or Eastern Australia, where at 11.19 UT, a brief total eclipse of the moon could be seen. On the 28th of May, after sunset, if clear, one would be able to see Mercury at magnitude 2.3, around half a degree away from Venus, some 300 times brighter. Mercury presents a tiny crescent, but Venus a nearly full disk, both being within around 10 arc seconds across. May the 31st. Before dawn on the 31st, low in the southeast, Jupiter over to the left and Saturn above will be seen above a very thin crescent moon. On May the 2nd and the 18th, there are good nights to observe the hygienous rill on the surface of the moon. For some time, a debate raged whether craters on the moon were caused by impacts or volcanic activity. We now know that virtually all are caused by impact, but it's thought that the Hyginus crater that lies in the centre of the Hyginus rill may well be volcanic in origin. It's an 11 kilometre wide rimless pit, in contrast to impact craters which have raised rims, and it's a close association with the rill of the same name associated with internal lunar events. It can be quite easily seen to be surrounded by dark material. It's thought that an explosive release of dust and gas created a vacant space below so that the overlying surface collapsed, so forming the crater. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Haratina Mogashanu and Samuel Leske with the night sky where you are. Kia ora from New Zealand, this is Haritina Mogoshanu and Samuel Liski from Wellington, New Zealand and here we are with the night sky in May 2021. If we look at the night sky long enough to observe changes in the patterns of stars, we notice that these patterns shift ever so slowly westwards. The reason for that is that our vantage point from where we're looking at the stars behind our solar system, our galactic immediate neighbors, that vantage point changes every day by about one degree. From Earth, it seems like the same stars come up every day about four minutes earlier. But that's not true for all stars. There are some stars that in New Zealand never set or rise. Their light just gets washed away 
away by the sun when it rises. These stars move around in circles and we call them circumpolar. The point that is visible from New Zealand around which stars rotate is called the South Celestial Pole. There are some stars that we never see from New Zealand, such as Polaris, the North Star, most of the Big Dipper stars, Cassiopeia, and so on. We don't see them here because they're hidden by the Earth. So if you ever buy a star, which you can't really do, and you wish to observe it, here's something you need to keep in mind. Do you travel much around the Earth? Because, except if you are on the equator, where if you are patient and can spare a few months waiting, then you can see most of the stars in ideal conditions. Then everywhere else on Earth, there are places where you see some stars and you don't. And if you decide to move to one of the poles forever, then every night you will see all of the stars in your half of the sky, and you'll never see the other half. So when we talk about what is in the sky in New Zealand, there are stars that are always in the sky here. These are the circumpolar stars. The bulk of them make up the beautiful big circle in the southern part of the sky. The most famous of them is the Southern Cross and the Two Pointers. Beautiful and bright, located straight in the Milky Way. If you ever get lost in New Zealand and you can see the Milky Way, just follow that and somewhere along the way is the Southern Cross. This works any time on a clear sky night from a dark sky location, which is about 80% of New Zealand. This time of the year, after sunset, the Southern Cross is up high which means it's in a good position to observe. Around the Southern Cross is the famous asterism, invented by a bunch of Christchurch kids called the Frying Pan. The two pointer stars are the handle of the Frying Pan, and the stars in Centaurus that surround it are the pan. The Southern Cross, they said, is the fish of the Frying Pan. Maori call the dark patch around the Southern Cross that we know as the coal sack, they call it the flounder. So here you have the fish and the flounder, in the frying pan. An asterism that we just mentioned is just like a constellation and it means a grouping of stars. But the word constellation is used now for the official sectors in the sky, so to describe everything else that is unofficial, asterism is the better definition. If you want to make the asterism of the walk instead of the frying pan, we use the amazing Omega Centauri globular cluster as the pointy bottom of the walk. Omega Centauri is also in a good position to observe this time of the year, finally. First identified as a non-stellar object by astronomer Edmund Haley in 1677, Omega Centauri is about 5,000 parsecs, or 17,000 light years away from us, and is the most massive globular cluster in the Milky Way, with a diameter of 150 light years across. It has about 10 million stars, weighing almost as much as the supermassive black hole at the centre of the Milky Way. That is about 4 million times more massive than our sun. Omega Centauri is visible with the naked eye. In binoculars and in a telescope, the bigger the better, the view. It is spectacular. What makes it very special, other than its lace appearance and size, is that at its centre, Omega Centauri is believed to have its own black hole. And it might have originally been a dwarf galaxy, just like the Magellanic Clouds, that has been eaten by the Milky Way. Following the Milky Way, in the constellation Carina, there is a hypergiant star, Eta Carinae. 
Edakarine is about 2,300 parsecs or 7,500 light years away. It has at least two stars of a combined luminosity 5 million times greater than the sun. For three days in 1843, it became the second brightest star in the sky. Brighter than Canopus, officially the second brightest star in the sky. Then faded away so it could not be seen with the naked eye. And finally now has come back to being visible and it is around magnitude 4 to 4.3 which means it can be seen with the naked eye if you know where to look better though in a telescope Eta Carina is spectacular it has an orange tinge and there are beautiful nebulae surrounding it it's one of my favorite telescope objects in the entire night sky Eta Carina nebula is also home of the VR25 one of the most luminous stars known in our galaxy Two open clusters, both great in binoculars and even better in telescopes, are the nearby and nearby the Southern Cross, are the jewel box, which is on the same side as the pointers, and the pearl cluster, also known as NGC 3766, which is on the opposite side. They're both really beautiful open clusters, and you can see blue and red giants in those clusters when you look at them through the telescopes. The pearl cluster is also very close to Lambda Centauri, that is home of the Running Chicken Nebula, which is only a good object for astrophotography, and it's very hard to see otherwise, and you'll certainly struggle to see a running chicken. Right by the Diamond Cross, a good binocular object is the Southern Pleiades. These are also very high in the sky, and good that they are because the Northern Pleiades, also known as the Pleiades, are now very close to the sun, so we can't see them for a couple of months. And finally, by the False Cross in Vela, the Omicron Valorum star cluster, or IC2391. Only about 500 light years from Earth, and NGC2516 are also objects we look at on a regular basis, in fact every weekend at this time of the year. NGC2516 is also known as the Southern Beehive, because it's thought it resembles the real Beehive cluster, or M44. This proves once again that astronomers are really good at naming stars. The two neighbouring galaxies, the large and small Magellanic Clouds, are now a bit harder to observe because they are in the lower third each side of the axis that goes from the Southern Cross to Arcanar, also a circumpolar star. After sunset, of course, the large Magellanic Cloud is the patch to the west and the small Magellanic Cloud is the patch to the east of that axis. Just follow up a pair of binoculars and enjoy them. They're not so much visible with the naked eye, as you would expect, so we always use peripheral or averted vision to see them better. From Wellington's Botanical Gardens, or on a full moon night, you can just barely make them out. Now, because they are lower on the horizon, we are observing them through a layer of atmosphere, which is okay for visual observations, but not so good if you want to take deep sky photographs or astrophotography. As the Earth orbits the Sun, it also spins on its axis, obviously. The extension of this axis to infinity gives us the South Celestial Pole and the North Celestial Pole. The height of the Celestial Pole in the sky gives us the latitude that we are on Earth. The lower the Celestial Pole in the sky, the smaller the circumpolar region and the other way around. In New Zealand, the South Celestial Pole is at approximately 40 degrees in the sky, which is also the radius of the circumpolar zone. The circumpolar stars are always in the sky and depending how much moisture is there in the sky from your observing place or how much light pollution there is, you can enjoy very many of these objects all year long and all night long. Just mind that some of them will be lower to the horizon and others will be higher. 
The circumpolar zone is fascinating and I did a little bit of uh, reading on this one lately and if you have a circumpolar zone you can almost learn to use it as a clock for timekeeping especially here in New Zealand where it rotates clockwise. In very, the Northern Hemisphere, it ro rotates counterclockwise, so it's, it's a bit harder. I haven't thought about that before I came here. However, the stars rotate in 23 hours and 56 minutes, so not 24 hours. So every day they shift a little bit, but they're very good and you can still keep the time by them. The ancient Egyptians called these stars of the circumpolar zone indestructible and aligned their pyramids and temples with them. They also believe their pharaohs became stars of the circumpolar region after they died. So by aligning the pyramids to the pole star, the souls of the dead had direct passage north. Unfortunately, we cannot see those pharaoh stars from here from New Zealand as it just so happens that the north circumpolar region is hiding right behind Earth as observed from here. While the ancient Egyptians saw circumpolar stars as indestructible and imperishable, that was another term they referred to, um, they thought that the rest of the stars were unwearing. This is alluding to the fact that even though they had a longer path to travel than the circumpolar stars, the other stars still kept coming back from behind the horizon. The other part of the sky that we see from New Zealand is seasonal. There's a new book by a um, famous archaeoastronomer, Professor Anthony Aveni, called Star Stories, where he discusses seasonality as a common theme among constellations' myths. Stories progress as constellations move across the sky, he says. It's all about the stories and what we learn from them. We created constellations for discourse about moral issues and social rules about affairs, but practical and spiritual about our immediate needs and our wildest dreams the sky is there to tell tales of moral significance for all of the cultures he says here in new zealand maori have even different names and stories for the same stars as they shift across the sky each season occupying a different position as seen after sunset in regards to the cardinal point the most popular of these seasonal constellations are obviously the zodiacal constellations who has not heard of these the stars that make the zodiacal constellations are those stars that are behind the path of the planets in our solar system nobody knows for sure who invented them or what they looked like in ancient times but we do know the Sumerians lived a rich artistic tradition that showed many naturalistic animals but featured prominently lions, bulls and sometimes scorpions. These same animals were pictured in the sky as the earliest zodiacal constellations, Taurus, Leo and Scorpius. Their stars are three of the four royal stars, Aldebaran in Taurus, Regulus in Leo and Antares in Scorpius. What's awesome about these constellations is that they're about 90 degrees apart from each other. A fourth constellation that completes the four Mesopotamian pillars of the sky is Aquarius, which is not in the sky right now. This time of the year after sunset, we can see the constellation of Leo in the mid-northern part of the sky, while Scorpius is rising from the west. Of course, the Leo we see is upside down to the Leo folks in the northern hemisphere will see. To the west of Leo is Cancer the Crab, with its famous opening cluster of stars M44, the real beehive as it swarms with stars. Now, this cluster is about 577 light years away and estimated to be about 730 million years old, with an average magnitude of 3.5, so easily visible. 
if you have a dark sky location. Also in Cancer is M37. It's another open cluster. Gemini is lying along the horizon, waiting to set, so not in such a good position to observe much there. Though you can see the Eskimo um, nebula, planetary nebula. Leo is an amazing target for telescopes and binoculars. Close to the area south of the triangle that marks Leo's hips is M65, M66 and NGC3628, which will be visible depending on the size of the binoculars. They're also known as the Leo triplet. Also in Leo, M105, it's an elliptical galaxy. M96, another galaxy in Leo, lies about 35 million light years away. To the east of Leo is Virgo, home of the 3C273 quasar, which is a favourite observation target for us. Tell me more about that quasar. Well, it just looks like a very faint little star, but it's not. It's uh, what we call a blazer, which is an incredibly active, you know, active galactic nuclei, and it's blasting an enormous amount of energy out. So much so that we can see it as a little tiny uh, magnitude 12 star from 2.4 billion light years. Billion. Billion. Wow. So that light has been travelling all the way from that little starlight-looking thing for 2.4 billion years. And it's so bright, it outshines its, its host galaxy. And I'll just add here for our listeners that you found it all by yourself with uh, our Dobsonian telescope. Well, with the help of a good, you know, software. <laughs> Still very impressive. To the east of Virgo is Libra, the scale reinvented by the ancients by reducing the claws of the scorpion to mark the autumnal equinox when the days were equal to the night. Since then, due to precession, the equinox now occurs in Virgo. Ironically, the two brightest stars in Libra still bear the names of Northern Claw and Southern Claw, Zubin al-Ganubi and Zubin al-Shamali, a reminder of the former glory of Scorpius. In May, we have more hours of dark than we do of light, because it's after the equinox. If you're a morning bird, you must wait until 7am for the sunrise at the beginning of the month. I'm not a morning bird. No, well, we have the alarm goes off, which helps. And 7.30 at the end of the month. If you're a stargazer, which we are, then be happy, as sunset is very early in May. And the sun is going down about 5.30 at the beginning of the month, and around 5 at the end of the month. But that's not when the darkness falls onto New Zealand. It would take two more hours for it to be dark enough um, for actually us to really see these night sky treats. So only two hours later, you should be able to properly see everything we want to see and, of course, photograph things. Speaking of which, here um, is what happens to the moon in May because we know the moon is a terrible light polluter and we don't want to have the moon in the sky when we do any kind of astrophotography unless it is astrophotography that relates to the moon, obviously. But we are happy for the moon's ability to keep our axis stable. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> also, there's a moon garden under construction, so um, th that's going to be really, really beautiful once it's done. We'll have the, the chance to walk through it at uh, full moon, because what else can you do on a full moon? Yeah. New moon is what you want to have for stargazing, and that's on the 12th of May. So any two weeks around that date are good for observing. In reality, we only have about two weeks each lunar month to admire the night sky. A lunar month is the time between two successive syzygies, which is quite the word to pronounce and write, and it means the period of time that has passed, in our case, between two consecutive new moons or full moons. At new moon, the moon rises and sets with the sun, so it is on the same line of sight as the sun. 
The next traditional phase of the moon is the first quarter. I'm saying traditional because here in Aotearoa, Maori have their own phases of the moon. Every single day they count as a phase of the moon, which is um, absolutely fascinating. So they have anything between 28 and 32 phases of the moon. So imagine you have to remember all of these. Lucky we can only remember or we, we, we're only required to remember four or, or eight. So um this one is um, the next one that we have to remember is the first quarter. And in May, this occurs on the 20th. And last but not least, full moon is on the 26th of May. Just to note, the worst time to look at the moon through a telescope is at full moon, people. I'm just saying because um, people usually come to do stargazing when the moon is full. But if you must look at the full moon if your telescope, then... With the eye that you're viewing the full moon in with your telescope, use that same eye once you've finished to look at one of your friend's heads and it'll look like it's disappeared. Good trick. A nice little astronomy party trick. Yeah, well, come and uh, we'll show you how to do this. It's <laughs> quite fun, actually. The moon, when it's full, is really, really, really bright. It has the maximum amount of surface lit from the sun. And, of course, it reflects the light from the sun. What we do, actually, we put a moon filter. Actually, you had two filters on top yeah, of each other last time, yeah, yeah. right? Did it's it work? so bright. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's just yeah. so bright. It made the image a little bit green, but yeah. it was okay. Otherwise, it, it's a real strain for the eye. You, you have to wait another 20 minutes for the rhodopsin to, to form again, as if your retina burns momentarily. So you have to think about it. If you look at it through a telescope, at least do it at the end of the night. The full moon... It's nice to photograph through a small telescope or, um, you know, with a with a phone camera on a on an adapter or even by your hand if you can put your hand by the telescope. So it's quite cute. I mean, there are some things nice about the full moon. This time of the year, no naked eye planets are visible in the evening sky. Um, but if you wait until after midnight, you will see Saturn and then um, just a little bit later, Jupiter coming up. And that would be around one o'clock. And... Then just before sunrise, there will be the two bright objects in the northwestern sky. That's if anyone wonders, because we actually get asked, what's, what are those two bright stars in, in, the, um, in the northwestern sky? They are Jupiter and Saturn. Before we sign out, the constellation featured by Globe at Night in May is Crux, our very own Southern Cross. Get your observing hat on and help us measure the light pollution around the world. Of course, you'll have to be able to see the Southern Cross to measure light pollution, but anyway. We can show you where it is. But there's other constellations you can use if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. You'll see detailed instructions on our website or on globeatnight.org. All you have to do is count the number of stars you can measure from your street and compare these with the number of stars from Globe at Night's maps. There is a citizen science project where anyone can participate and make a difference while you learn your stars. So give it a go. We look forward to seeing your observations online. Until next time, Haritina Mogoshanu and Sam Leski. We wish you clear skies. And keep safe so that you can always see the stars and always remember that we are made of the same stardust as they are. This has been a podcast from the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics. To find out more, visit jodcast.net.